0: Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a
1: chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on February 16th, 2016 at Internal Matter in Boston's Fort Point neighborhood. The theme for the evening was escape.
0: Welcome. Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam we're really psyched. Um, we have, uh, we've done two seasons of shows, mostly on Cape Cod in the summertime, so this is really like our first Boston show. We did open studios, but this is maybe our new thing here, yeah? And uh, we're really happy to be at Internal Matter, so thank you, Brian. This is a great venue. And uh, we're co-producing this tonight with the Fort Point Theater Channel, who's right here in the Fort Point Channel in the arts community. And uh, they are, uh, this is a series called Senses, the Senses series, we're part of that tonight. Um, And they get some sponsorship from the Boston Cultural Council and the Mass Cultural Council. So, okay. Okay, we're kicking the night off with the theme escape with
2: Jerry Riley. Good evening, everybody. My name is Jerry, and I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I have worked at the most senior level of business management. I was the CEO of Ford, and I was chairman of the board. I want to tell you about that. Now, about 18 years ago, a very good friend of mine, this guy named Rich, he's my college roommate, got himself in a heap load of trouble and ended up being sentenced to 14 years in federal penitentiary in Minnesota. About 11 and a half years after that, he got transferred to Boston to a halfway house down in Huntington Ave, serve out the last six months before he went to uh, uh, parole. So he arrived at the, the halfway house, this is like early 2009, and the way it works is when you get there, you get no freedom at all, and as you hit milestones, they sort of you know, give you a little bit more and you know, loosen up the leash. Um, so uh, his first milestone, he had to get a job. Well, it's early 2009. The whole world economy had just melted down in the end of 2008. There were no jobs, and there were no jobs for people getting out of prison in particular. So like a week or two, he was, you know, phone calls all day long and getting nowhere. And my friend John called me up, and he said, what about if we were to hire rich to do, be like a handyman around our houses. He goes, you must have some work, and I'm sure all our friends get some work. We can, you know, do it. And I said, John, that's a great idea. Said, but I'm sure there's no way in hell that the Bureau of Prisons would, this would fly with them. It would just be like too easy to scam, you know? So I said, but I'm going to, I'm going to see him this afternoon. I'll, I'll tell him anyway. So I go down, I see Rich, I tell him about it. He's very touched by it, but he, he agrees. There's no way this is gonna fly with the halfway house. But he said, you know, I got a meeting tomorrow morning with my counselor, and i am getting nowhere in the job hunt. so. C- you think you could write this up just like so I have something to show I'm trying and I'm like you know all right so I write this thing up the next day he calls me up he says they went for it I'm like what and they go "They, they say we can do this thing and I'm like you're kidding me so now, he says, I have to call up the job placement guy, and now I'm starting to get worried. I'm thinking, like, I'm messing with the federal government and and you know, and this, like, thing. So I get the guy on the phone, and I say, look, I just want to be totally clear, there is no company, there is no job, there is, this is just his friends, we're getting together. He goes, no, 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 I get it, I get it, that's fine. And I said, well, what do I have to do? Do I have to get incorporated? I'm thinking, like, this is going to be money, it's going to be complicated. You know, like to get taxpayer IDs or what? He says, well, all we really care about is that he gets a pay stub every week. I thought, I could do that. So I said, all right. So I get off the phone, I get on the internet. After an exhaustive 45-second search, I downloaded an Excel spreadsheet that could print out pay stubs. And thus was Ford, Friends of Rich Ducat Enterprises, born. (laughs) With me as the CEO. The next morning, Ford opened for business. Uh, Rich walked out the door of the halfway house for the first time in almost 12 years, by himself, down the street, walked up Mass Ave, got on the Green Line, took it out to Newton, got off at the T-stop, and walked the one mile to the Ford World Headquarters at my house. <laughs> so, the way this works is, um, when he left in the morning, he had to check out of the halfway house, and he had a certain amount of time to get to work, then he had to call in as soon as he got there, and then at the end of the day, he had a call and he was leaving and he had so much time to get back there. But from the time he walked in the door to the job to the time he left, um, he was completely under my authority. The halfway house had nothing to do with it, he was on the job, whatever the boss says. So I took my responsibilities very seriously. The um, First thing I did is I went on eBay and I bought uh, an old beat up time clock and I bolted it to the wall of my office. <laughs> So when he came in in the morning, I was a hard ass. He's like, you punch in, you know? And uh, if, you know, if I see him like going up to the bathroom, it's like, crap on your own time. Get a good punch out here, you know? Well, anyway, the second day on the job, uh, I, I wake up. It's a beautiful day. So he shows up, and I say, Rich, uh, I've got to talk to you. And he, he says, all of a sudden, he's looking alarmed. I said, you know, I think we got morale problems we got to address. And I said, so today we're going to devote to team building exercises. And he's completely, I said, go out in the backyard, get the canoe and meet me out front. So we take the canoe, we put it on the roof of the car and we get down to the river and we put the canoe in. Now, because I take my responsibilities very seriously, I had this whole, you know, this, this whole program here. So we get in the canoe and I say, okay, Rich, you have to understand a canoe is a two man vessel. We have to work together as a team in synchronization in order to move the boat forward. If we work against each other, the boat goes nowhere. You got it? He goes, yeah. So off we went up the river. It was a beautiful day. Uh, there was something magic about being out on the river in nature with this guy who had been locked up for 12 years, and he had escaped. Um, so anyway, he worked all during my house. He did some painting. He did a little carpentry. It turned out he had a lot of skills I didn't even know about, did some yard work. On Friday, I got out my Excel spreadsheet, printed them out a pay stub. Everybody was happy. For the next six weeks, he worked at all of our friends' houses, but every Friday, he would come to my house to get the pay stub, That's, that was the key. At the end of the six months, um, he was released to parole and it was a sad day for me, I stepped down as the CEO, <laughs> we shuttered the doors of Ford Enterprise and that was the end of my, uh, my major business career. Um, it's five years later, he uh, finished out his, his uh, parole last year. He's a happy, productive member of society today. Uh, has had no further involvement with the criminal justice system. Um, so in closing, I just, I'm just i looking out here. I have no idea who's in the audience. I know a few people, but a bunch of you I don't know. And, you know, there might be some like heavy hitters here, some corporate people. There might be some titans of industry out there. And, uh, you know, I just want to let you know, if you're looking for anybody, you want somebody who's seasoned, experienced, professional, <laughs> you know, I'm your guy. Um, if, you know, you want a, maybe a startup company, I launched a company in 24 hours. You know, you want somebody to like, you know, manage a team, you know, whatever. I'm Mr. Team Builder. And if you want somebody with deep financial acumen, I come with my own Excel spreadsheet. So call me. There we, go.
0: we have with us Catherine Howell. Woo! Yeah. You're tall, man.
3: You guys are tall. So uh, how many runners do I have out there? Do we have any runners? Anybody like to run? Ooh, I was on my own. Well, I used to like to run. I used to run when I was a teenager. Yeah, when our uh, bodies are uh, you know, all ready for that sort of pounding. And, uh, but it started really slowly. Um, I started, I tried running when I was 19. And I was horrified to find, I, I lived in Littleton, Anybody know where Littleton Mass is? 495 Route 2? Yeah, couldn't be prouder? Yeah. So um, I was horrified to find out, and this was when it was all apple orchards and horse farms, so I was horrified to find out that I could not run, even like 50 feet, without being like...
0: <gasps>
3: you know, and I, was, I thought, you know, if, if something happened, seriously happened, I I'm, would I'm, I'm, be dead I, if I can't run. So... Uh, I had a really, my closest friend, David Chapin, and I, you know, he was like, you can do this, you can run. So I started, you know, that summer, 79, I started running and um, got up to three miles. Yeah, three miles every day. And um, then thought, you know, it's time to sort of stretch it out. I was gonna be going to be uh, going back to UMass that fall. and I knew I was going I wanted to do a little more, a little further distance. So I stretched it out. I, so I would get up really early. I've always been a really early morning person. So I would get up really early, like five in the morning, 4:35 in the morning, head out, and I'd run down around Witchwood Heights, which was about about ooh where my house was there were no other houses for at least ooh 3 quarters of a mile down one way and that's where i ran toward david's house and so there was um uh a ski area right and a big parking lot but then you know we used to call it mount Hartwell's glacier park because it was like actually like a hill whatever but anyways so um so anyways so i was running every morning you know going down and then i'd get to David's house and say, okay, come on. And then we'd run, you know, the three miles. So I'd already run about a mile and a half. So um, I'd sort of just been picking this up and been doing about two weeks, and I just had one week before going to college. And so I was out, and and like I said, this was country, right? And I felt incredibly great, and there was never anybody on the road. So one morning I'm running, (laughs) and car goes by. (sighs) Wow, car. Who knew, you know? <laughs> so, and so, you know, didn't think anything of it. And then the next morning, that same car, whew, but this time went a little slower. And you know, I was just like, hmm, you know, Spidey sense, you know, whatever, you know. So then the third day, I'm out, uh, just started running, and, and I'd just gone about half, well, not quite halfway between my house and Witchwood Heights. Now, there was all woods on the left side, right? On the right side, that's where the big development is, right? You know, like, one little schoolhouse, half a mile later, ski area parking lot, another half a mile, you've got houses, right? And so, I'm, you know, just about halfway, and uh, that car, slow, slow, and starts to kind of stop, and I was like, okay and I sort of pick it up, and they had been going one way, and I look behind me, and they're turning around, and I'm like, oh, shit, so I start picking it up again, and I, and now, like, I'm a runner, okay, I'm really a runner, and so all of a sudden, I said, fine, um, you know, what do I do now? Now, I grew up in this area i knew those woods like the back of my hand and so like you're like okay do i go back home i can't because i can't turn around because they've turned around and they're coming fast and so i head up into the woods right and and i think i'll just you know go up and you know i'm in the dark i turn around because remember it's still it's not even dawn yet right turn around and darn if that car doesn't stop where i pulled up into the woods and the car Door starts to open. I thought, Pah. and I just ran. I ran through those woods. Now in these Hartwell woods, it's like a big circuitous route down to where the other houses are, right next to my friend Laura Gaspari's house. And so I was like, yeah, I'll just run down there. They'll be gone, right? So and I'm like, ah, 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 right? I keep looking behind me, thinking, you know, are they following me? And um, and you got to remember too, like. I didn't go to scary movies. Like, like I, all I knew is that I suddenly felt like prey, okay? This was totally guts. And so I'm coming around and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm free. And there they are. And now I realize there's two people in that car. And so I back up and I go around and I start running up backyards and dash across the street to David's house just as that car is coming up that road And I thought, right, okay. (laughs) So I'm there. And so I told David what happened. And I felt a real mix of things. First of all, I was so glad that this didn't happen a month before when I couldn't run for shit. And secondly, As much as I love running in the morning, I never ran at 4.30 in the morning anymore. So I'm very glad that I escaped whatever that car had in mind. At the same time, it did take joy of running. And even though I ran at UMass and got even longer, six miles and 13 miles every other day, I stopped running after I left UMass. And that was about it. So... That's my
0: story. Okay, <laughs> hey, our next storyteller this evening is Gina. <laughs> Gina. Um, 2007
4: was a year, a year in my life to remember, but I remember um, it was when emails didn't really inundate you yet, and you actually kind of still like read them, and you were like, oh, that's kind of interesting, or, Hmm. And so it was kind of the time where like my mom sent me a bunch of emails that were forwarded and forwarded and forwarded by different friends of hers and some of them were like oh you have an angel in your life and then some were like you're a woman like carry your keys close because someone's going to attack you in a parking lot. And I kind of even in 2007 was kind of disregarding these um, kind of forwards from my mom but there was this one forward that she sent me and It was, again, there were like two or three tos and froms that I had to scroll down. And there were these images that stuck in my brain of this stained glass butterfly only found in, I don't know, the rainforests of South America. And I just remember like scrolling through them being like, wow, I'm kind of glad I opened this email and read it or looked at it. Um, But that year, like I said, 2007, before all the shit hit the fan economically, Um, I had a banner year of terrible events. So I had a really good friend pass um, of leukemia. She was only 33 and she had a small child. And then I found out that my dad was like a total fuck. (laughs) And he had been like a really kind of good dad in my mind. And like that image just literally shattered with like one phone call. So that sucked. And then the guy that I was with at the time wasn't handling my emotional distress in the way that I thought fit. Um, he just wasn't hanging with the tough stuff. And so I was like, you know, I had always been a runner and not like Catherine running, but like I had just as a coping mechanism ran for my issues. And I would, you know, it was not unlike me to say, oh, shit's getting a little tough, I'm gonna take off. So like I would move to Cincinnati because I had a friend there, or move to Italy. And like, you know, I would just take off for a little bit and kind of that's how I was dealing with my stuff. And that works in your 20s anyways. So this 2007 year, I was like, all right, shit got real, real. I'm going big with my escape plan to run from my problems. And so I'm going to go to South America with no plan, no money, no Espanol. (laughs) And I'm just like, it's perfect. So I start the trip off with the kind of cliched, like, back. Packing across South America with your best friend. So me and my girl did like Chile, Peru, Bolivia. So we did like Machu Picchu and we did the salt mines and we did like Titicaca and we had a blast. And so, you know, we're like going to the internet cafes and we're drinking and we're just, we're having a great time. And then she leaves me in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And that's where I'm going to start my real escape and adventure. And I'm just going to live... Like, I, with no plan, <laughs> no money. I'm just going to figure it out. So I meet this woman, Andrea, who was just awesome. And that's a whole story in and of itself. But she, she was, like, the mayor of Belgrano, which is the little barrio where I lived. And she walked around with a cat named Nefertitis. And she introduced me to everyone. And she had a rooftop pool. And, like, she went to all these great parties. And so, I like, I just was having a blast. And a typical day for me was, like, I would wake up to the gym that was right down the street, work out, midday I'd like have a steak, some Malbec and then at night I would go to like a cafe or a bar with my deck of cards and the first thing literally I learned in Spanish was like how to do my card trick with an Argentinian accent in Argentina. I mean it was just like surreal. So I'd befriend these two guys separately but like we become this like trio, and it was Aaron from like the American South. He was from somewhere in the South, and then Neil, who was from Liverpool, and they were like gorgeous and awesome. And I was like a non-romantic but like flirty, fun person. And we just did everything together. We would like eat together, we would study together, we would travel, we would shop, and we decided our next escape because we kind of got to know Buenos Aires, and it was like, eh, let's do something else. So we decided we're going to go to Brazil, all three of us we're just going to traverse Argentina and we're going to make our way to Iguazu Falls which is like right on the border of Argentina and Buenos, um and, and Brazil and then we'll just like start this grand adventure in Brazil and so I'm like yeah all right so we're we're doing that and along the way getting to Iguazu Falls um I stop at a couple internet cafes and I realized my mom had been admitted to the hospital she had um appendicitis but she was okay, but like she had been in the ICU and she was uninsured, and like no one knew what was happening. My sister had a child, and I kind of got pictures of that birth. And then my boyfriend, who was kind of slacking, um, his father passed. So I'm like, God damn it, you know? Like I don't, I don't want. I was I'm on my second escape from my escape. Like why don't? Why? Why is real life hitting me? And I get to Iguazu, and we're. It was the butterfly migration. I don't know if anyone knows about Iguazu Falls, but it's essentially these waterfalls, natural preserves, and like, I was literally walking through and like butterflies were landing on me. Like I was just walking through and it was amazing. And I'm about to kind of cross the border into Brazil and I hear this like kind of whispering. I see this small group gathered and I hear these like, kind of whispers and I get a little closer and there's a sighting of a stained glass butterfly and I get close enough and like everybody's still enough and I see this beautiful clear, clear winged with like these black lines and the thing that made, it's so hard to see because it's, it is its its surroundings. And I just realized in that moment, like I can, I can go home because I can be beautiful no matter what I'm surrounded by and no matter what my environment, no matter how shitty or how great, like, I will be beautiful with what is around me. That's my story. Thank you.
0: And our next lovely storyteller is Greg Shea. Woo!
5: Come on up, Greg.
0: Oh, there you are, good man.
5: Shay, how are you? Too much feedback, feedback, we like feedback. Turn it up. Um, so, Escape. So, um, Escape. We wanted to build a clubhouse. I was seven. Wayne and Dale, my next door neighbor brothers, were nine and six. So, we didn't want to build a clubhouse of sticks and blankets and whatnot, no, 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 no. This clubhouse had to have walls and windows and a door and a roof, really, real, because we were seven, you know? So, so. There was this hill across the street from our house, we lived next door to each other. The hill was called Blueberry Hill. And we'd go up there in any weather, all day, at night, whenever. We went up and did, we played war, we played army, we pl- which was fun to play, but playing cowboys and Indians was better. And being a cowboy was cool. You had the guns and the hat and stuff, walk around like, you know. But being Indian, i could run around half naked ah! and i had a, and i had a bow and arrow oh sorry you know so we got together one afternoon and decided that we're gonna build a goddamn clubhouse so where are we gonna get this stuff i don't know so one day i'm walking home from school and those hills over here oh i'm ahead of myself i usually am i'll stand over here no i um uh, went into the house took off my school clothes School clothes. Everybody remember that? School clothes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Put on my play clothes and went boom, up onto the hill, running around up on the hill. Now on the hill, I found all kinds of things. I saw a gypsy family, which is back in the school clothes days. Um, a cart pulled by some creature and a little girl standing there and this old woman going, and the guy on the, on the thing going, get away from my daughter, you know. I'm, oh, I'm starting early. So, and I saw a hermit. Well, I didn't see a hermit. I saw a sign that said there was a hermit, so I took his word for it. And I saw a dinosaur right here. The Tyrannosaurus Rex! Ah! Or maybe it was a uh, velociraptor. Nah. A Tyrannosaurus Rex. I'm like, ah! And I went down downhill. Ah! And I outran the, I outran him. I did. I outran him, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes, I did. I know I did. So we decided that the next, that afternoon, we would, oh, so I'm up on the hill one day, and I stumble across, like clubhouse material, uh, prefab walls and doors and windows, and I'm walking around. Obviously, it was somebody's construction site. I'm seven. What? So I said, oh, I found the stuff. So the next day, I tell Dale and Wayne, hey, I found a clubhouse shit. So we didn't swear them. And um, <laughs> we thought about it, but we didn't. And um, so um, that day after school, I'm walking down the street to my house, in the hill's over here, and I see a helicopter going very slowly and very low. And I'm like, hmm, what's that doing? And it gradually, gradually disappeared behind the trees. I'm like, no, that looks like it's landing on Blueberry Hill. Why would it land on Blueberry Hill? Where would it land? I don't know. I don't know. So I go, change out of my school clothes, put on my other stuff. And I said, let's go, we rendezvous, we go up the hill. And I'm like, I don't know where it is. I'm going to try to find it. To- oh, look, here it is. So we find the treasure trove, the clubhouse supply house. Look at this. Oh, everything. So Dale's over there, hmm, 30 feet in the adult world from me. Wayne's kind of between us out this way. And I'm over here bouncing on a window or something. Oh, how are we going to get this stuff home? I don't know. Will you pick up what end of it? I don't want to pick it up. It's heavy. Oh, Wayne, shut up. And then we noticed something. There were guys surrounding us. They come out from behind the trees. And not only were they guys surrounding us, coming out from behind the trees, they had bows and arrows trained on us. And Vale's like, uh. And me, off to the side, I'm just like, balancing on my window. Uh, All right, I'm going to stay over here. Maybe they don't even see me. So Wayne uh, Dale, the older one, starts to go, hey, 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 let us You know. We're just up here. And they start yelling at us. Hey, you kids are stealing our stuff. What's the deal? What do you think this is? This is private property. You can't be doing that. And Wayne's like, yeah, but, and then Dale's like, stop, no, we're going to do, we will leave. And they're like, no, you won't. So one of the guys comes out, wraps, wraps his hands up, ties up Dale's hands behind his back, pushes Dale up against a tree, lashes him to the tree, and we're like, and I'm still on my window trying to be invisible, all right, oh, look. And one of the guys starts letting arrows fly at Dale. Now, I'm thinking, I don't think he's really aiming at Dale, but all things happen, you know? So Dale's screaming his head off. Wayne's starting to shriek and cry and he wants to go to his brother but he doesn't want to get that close I don't like him that much so, so I'm going okay what to do hey and they're like what uh, I'm just going to go and I won't tell anyone anything alright and they go what and I, poof, I bolt ah! down the street screaming through the through the woods through the ferns in my face, branches, And I get down to the bottom of the hill. This is the backyard. And all these parents are standing there going, hmm, what's going on here? What's all that noise up there? I'm like, ah, ah, guys with arrows, oh, this stuff. I get, I get, I get, ah, ah, and I just ran. Ran down the street all the way to my house. And I, my mother's car is in the driveway and I go, ah, and I blow the door open, blow the inside door open, run. And she goes, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, and I just run. Into the living room because it was a wall of windows and there was a sofa and there was long curtains so i ran back there like bah! and i just hid behind the couch My i was like crazy what are you doing i'm like nothing why Not-. so the next day nobody said anything no one talked about it ever again the parents didn't know what happened said anything I never said anything to Wayne or Dale. Dale Dale was fine, no holes in his head or anything. So, I'm thinking, hmm, years later I'm thinking, well, I was chased by a dinosaur, I was.
0: Greg. All right, our next storyteller before our break will be Jennifer.
6: I was really hoping you were going to call my husband next. (laughs) Uh, My husband's a great storyteller and so are a lot of other people in this room. Um, I'm not, Uh, so so bear with me. Um, We we enjoy going to the Mosquito all summer long in Wellfleet um, because I'm from the Cape and so we usually go there. And uh, my husband told stories pretty much every week. I only told once, and I told it spontaneously because the theme was weddings. And we got married four times in our first year, and so that was a really fun and easy story to tell. This is not an easy story to tell. Um, but I'm, the theme is Escape, and it's not my story to tell, but it's a story that I, I know a little bit about. Um, The story of refugees trying to escape in the Middle East from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Palestinians, uh, is a tough story. And I've been reading the headlines a lot. I'm more familiar with the Central American struggles because we work in Honduras. So it's a story that's sort of close to my heart anyway and I'm very keenly aware of it and I've been following the headlines. But in December, I had just gotten back from Honduras and a friend of mine uh, texted me and she said, I cannot stand this any longer. I just booked a a ticket to Lesbos uh, to volunteer for two weeks. Will you come with me? So I said yes. And so we worked in Lesbos, Greece for two weeks. Um, Being from the Cape, I, I quickly, felt very, very much at home in Lesbos. It's um, very much like the cave. It's a tourism economy in the nicer months and a fishing community year-round. The communities are small and tightly knit and some of you might be aware that they've been nominated for the Nobel Prize for their work in welcoming refugees and I'll tell you they deserve it. Um, Over 550,000 people have come in through Lesbos in just the last year it's always been a place for refugees, but in the last year, imagine—most of you probably know the size of the Cape. I would analogize it geographically as well, although it's a little bit different. So, you know, we are that long, skinny spit of sand, and they're—they're they're more of a, a round island. Otherwise, very similar. I can't imagine 550,000 people coming into the Cape. Lesbos is a beautiful island, Uh, everybody knows each other there and they've been coping with this by themselves because if you follow the headlines you know that the EU is actually sort of closing them in right now, it has been, and the Greece economy has been suffering for many years with austerity. They have a 16% tax right now, that's what it's been. It's a tough place to live, to get by. The fishermen are having a hard time because often they bring up bodies in their nets. Um, That is not unusual. It's not unusual to bring up children. It's not unusual to find yourself. They fish alone for the most part, and it's not unusual for them to find themselves in a position where they have to try to save somebody who tried to swim across. Um, And it's very difficult to pull somebody up who's never swam, and oftentimes they're not successful. It's very traumatizing. Also, um, people don't want to buy their fish anymore because they think they're tainted from the deaths that are going on in the Aegean. When you stand on Lesbos, where I was working, you can look at Turkey. It's right across. It's only five miles. It looks really close. You, you know, It's a beautiful landscape. It's mountainous. It's cold there right now, very similar to Cape weather, where some days you can have you know, a day where you don't have to wear a coat. It's 50 degrees and sunny. And the next day, it's really cold and 50-mile-an-hour winds, and the sea is so choppy, and it's very unpredictable. And so I would... I would tell you, it's not a, a very good place to be trying to cross the ocean. It's very dangerous. And imagine you're from Afghanistan. You've never seen an ocean. You have never seen an ocean, and you have your children with you. And you've just made a two-month journey, and you have your children with you, your family, the sur- people who have survived living in a very dangerous situation. You make that journey, and you get to the shore of Turkey, and then you have that five-mile you know, stretch of the Aegean to cross—it's very, very foreboding, very difficult, and they're up against a lot because they pay smugglers a lot of money. The people that we saw that came across are people like you and I. They're people that had careers. They're teachers and doctors and and um, nurses and and you know people in business and they had homes and they had cars and they had families and they're not even very religious necessarily they're just normal people that had normal lives they had a car they had a house they had their kids in school they, they lived near their families they had communities and they've been forced to leave for extraordinarily difficult reasons I mean no one wants to leave their home and so they find themselves paying their the you know smugglers like they pay like 12 to 1500 or more dollars or euros to come across um, the Aegean. They're given a crappy little raft, fake life jackets that are filled with cotton that will drown them if they are in the water. They are given sometimes only a half a tank of gas, which means they're guaranteed to run out in the middle of the ocean. They're given, uh, sometimes um, the Turkish Coast Guard comes across, men on jet skis and they slice their gas lines spraying them with gas they're left abandoned in the middle of the ocean um uh it's a it's there there's um i'm sorry (laughs) um they're really up against a lot i could go on about all of that but but what i on the upside of things i'll tell you um i worked with hundreds of people from dozens of countries from with dozens of little NGOs. The Greek people and those little NGOs are carrying the ball in a way that you can't imagine. I can't even tell you what a beautiful thing it was to work with people like that. I wish the UN could work that way. Everybody, we're, the volunteers come and go. I was there two weeks. A lot, of, Most volunteers are only there a few weeks, a week, two weeks, a month. Um, a lot of young people, a lot of vibrant young people. There's the hope in the world. There's a lot of reason for hope. Um, but they're doing the job. They are. They are. We welcome them in. We bring them in off the boats. There's lifeguards from Spain out there in the Aegean that help the rafts in. We bring them in. Oftentimes they faint when they get off the boat. We we bring them in. We have heating tents and chai and soup and warm clothes and dry sho- you know dry clothes shoes. We get them all outfitted. We welcome them from the boats. Salam. And we get them up to, we, we get them by the fire, um, then we bring them up to the next uh, level and off they go to UNCR, UNHCR camps and then to Athens. But what the work that is being done by ordinary people and by the Greek people that live on those islands is really quite extraordinary. There's a good reason for hope because there's so many, to see people just fall in and volunteer and work together is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever been able to participate in. Um, the head, there's a lot more behind the headlines than if you read them. It might sound a little hopeful right now, but there's not a lot of reason for hope, unfortunately, with the, with the projected outcomes for refugees. There are 60 million displaced people in the world right now. I wasn't going to tell a story and Caitlin reminded me, she said, but you have a story about escape. And my mission is to tell the stories and to try to bring awareness about the situations that these people face. And um, so I hope if I can get something across, then that's worth my total fear in getting up and telling stories. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Our next storyteller, our first storyteller, second half, is Jasmine. (laughs)
1: Thank you. I'm shorter than you. Um, my story is not really formed as a story, so I feel like I'm going to have to tell it by just speaking quickly. Like, Remember that McDonald's record that came out that was, like, Big mac, deal, a quarter pounder, what's up, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger? Anyways, all right, so... Whew. Here goes my really fast one that I'm going to try to form, and I hope it has a beginning, middle, and end. It will have an end eventually, and here's the beginning. Okay, so... Um, about a year ago, um, I- exactly a year ago, I started this thing at my church called 40 Days of Faith. And during that time, I was like, no, man, like my church said, we're gonna do this thing called 40 Days of Faith. And I was like, I am not doing that thing. I was in a bad mood. Like my marriage was kind of like in the pits, like Caitlin, you know. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> my, my marriage was kind of like And um, and as far as my career, I was like, man, I'm an actress, but I'm not getting any work. Like this kind of sucks. Like sucks on like marriage sucks on career like life's not going so well <laughs> Um, so I was like, I'm not doing this 40, things of, 40 days of faith. I did it last year. Nothing happened. I prayed for this, this, and this. God did nothing. I'm not doing this thing. So um, I was like, all right, I'm gonna, fine, fine, fine. I'll do it. I, I ended up doing it. Um, and you're, during during it, you're supposed to like choose if you want to fast something. And so I was like, I'll fast sweets. You know, like I'll be healthier, whatever. But then I was like, no, no, no. Fine. What I really know I need to fast is TV. And I was like, I can't fast TV. That's like my drug, man. I like a, stay up all night binge watching, you know? So anyways, in the end, I decided to fast television, which was very, very, very difficult. Um, But I did it. Okay. So uh, next part of the story is, um, so during this 40 days, you're supposed to like pray for like one big thing. And so um, I decided that I was going to study the book of Psalms. And so I studied Psalms and Psalms is like a perfect opportunity to lament, right? Because it's like, oh my God, like the Psalmist Paul is like, like crying out to God, like, oh my God, why have you left me all alone? Like, I'm like, the world is persecuting me and everything's terrible. And I was like, yes, me. <laughs> like, my marriage is in the pits. Like, I don't get acting work. Like, God, where are you? You know? So I was like lamenting. And on maybe the third day of this, I read one of these laments and I all of a sudden was like gripped by like, my heart with laments that were, Maybe larger than my own, um, specifically for me, I thought of human trafficking, and I was like, "Oh man, like there are like bigger problems out there than my own, um, and i 'm like complaining about this, that the other. so um, I felt really bad for a moment, and I was like sobbing for people in that in that um, circumstance. Um, but in that very moment, I was also uh, gripped with um, this like overwhelming feeling from God, like you know what, you don't even know my capacity for love. Like I love you and care about you and your problems just as much as I care about this other person and their problems that seem so much bigger than yours. And that moment felt very incredible. Uh, so during that time, I was like, you know what, I'm giving up acting. I don't even care about this. Like acting can be all about me, 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 me. So I was like, this isn't about me. This is about you, God. Like I want my life to be about you. So I'm giving this up. And about one week later, after I was, like, riding on cloud nine from, like, giving up acting and going all for God, like, I started getting all these phone calls for acting. And... Um they were, like, incredible jobs that I had not auditioned for. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, what's happening? But no, 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 I was giving that up for you, God. Like, I'm not supposed to do this, but I was like, I'll take these jobs. This is good, right? So um, so I started taking these jobs, and I started feeling like, you know what, God? Like, you're totally intentional. Like, you created me with intention, and your intention, you didn't create me, like, in vain. Like, you created me with these these, these desires, these passions, these skills for a reason, so I want to use them. So I started using them and that sort of like took off. Then a couple months passed and I started to feel this like nudge in my heart, like hmm, like my husband and I were praying, like what should we do next in our life? And we started having this feeling like move to LA. And I was like, I'm not moving to LA, like that's not happening. Like the only way I'll move to LA ever is if somebody offers me some huge job, and then I'm like, of course I'm moving to LA. Like Warner Brothers wants to cast me in this television show. I'm moving to LA, but so that hadn't happened. So I was like, I'm not going to move to LA. But that nudge just like keep kept coming and coming and coming. About two weeks ago, um, that nudge became like. <laughs> pounding, basically, and it was like, we started feeling like, should we move? Like, this is something, but we have nothing secure. We have three children, and we love our life here in Cambridge, and so why would we move to LA? Like, why should I just go to LA where there's like a million other actresses, and I'm just one, and here I'm already getting work? I should stay here, and my husband has a great job, and my kids have a great school, and we love our friends, but we felt like God was leading us somewhere. And we were like, well, what's the point of our faith if we're going to pray for things and then ignore God? Like, there's no point. So we decided we're going to move to L.A. (laughs) So, what I am escaping, what we are escaping is fear. Um, Because along with this decision, there's been like tons of fear just like mounting and mounting, like the fear of giving up our kids like really great school opportunity. The fear of giving up the security of our really great life that we feel like we thought we'd live here forever. the fear that my husband does not have a job there yet, that a fear that I do not have an agent or anything like that or any opportunities that are waiting for me in LA, but knowing that we trust God and we really believe in our faith and stretching our faith to the point where we feel like, you know what? We're just gonna go because if God said to go, then he has something good for us. So I'm escaping. Can we have to the
0: floor, Sharon Bort? Woo! Yeah, Sharon. Yay! Let's see. Yeah, that's
7: about right. So yeah, I came explicitly prepared to not tell a story tonight. So bear bear with me, Um, especially thinking all these travel stories and people escaping from not plan situations and I plan all of my travel to a T. Um, I know my hostels and my bus times and all of that Um, but what I do escape frequently from um, are bad dates. Um, (laughs) I've been on a lot of bad dates My friends even call me a varsity-level dater. I've been, uh, I've been doing the, I've been doing the online dating since before it was cool. Um, before 34% of married couples meet their spouse, uh, source from Modern Romance. Is am Um So, yeah, and there's a good reason for online dating, especially for me. Um, just to set the scene, um, mo- I work at an all-women's college. So there's, there's not a lot of men there, uh, students or staff. Um, most of my friends are gay or queer. Uh, shout out to my two token straight friends that I'm out with tonight. Um, <laughs> but it's hard, it's really hard to meet straight men in this, in this little bubble that I've created for myself. So bad that even I get these talks from my mom every once in a while. Sharon, everyone has a couple gay friends. You know, you have a couple, but really, all of your friends are get it's really strange, and not that I'm hinting at anything. I'm like, okay, mom, thank you. I have more the things that I know. Um, so one of my worst dates, though, um, was let's let's call him Bob. Um, he he messaged me, and I'm thinking, all right, he looks cute, it's a normal message, you know, and right to the point, he was like, let's go out, you seem cool, and I said, okay, great, I, I don't need to have one of these back and forths talking with random people I don't know, so I said, okay, let's go. This was my first mistake. If you have the information to, like, you know, dig through their profile and their questions, everyone has a very nice tailored profile. It's the questions where the meat is. Um, I didn't do that, I was just like, this is great, I don't have any plans for Saturday. There was a uh, a festival going on in Cambridge. I said, let's go there. First mistake, I ignored that he very explicitly said that he was an introvert, and it was like a Caribbean festival in Cambridge. People <laughs> were half naked. There was a blaring music. It was immediately we met, and he's just like, Ugh. I was like, okay, let's let's just walk. Let's let's walk. Um, so we're walking around, and we, we sit on a bench, and we're talking, and Immediate. I've never disagreed so much with one person. (laughs) Like, everything, you know, we start talking about traveling. Great, we both love to travel. And I say, oh, you know, uh, I was in Italy recently, and he was like, oh, that's amazing. I love Italy. And I was like, I really didn't like it. I thought the people were kind of mean. The art is a lot around Jesus, and it just, it, it wasn't, and he was, how can you not love the art? And, and me, okay, uh, well, I did love Vietnam. I really, really loved it. Vietnam, it was dirty. I was like, just back and forth, nothing we agreed on. Um, I was looking at my watch a lot. Uh, and finally, you know, I've, I've learned from other dates that where I, you know, pulled a big stunt texting my friend, call me right now, please call me. And And the thing, if you're gonna do that, way to get out of a date. You have to commit. You have to, because they'll doubt, are you just trying to get, no, my friend is in trouble. You don't understand that I have to go right now because my friend is in trouble? You have to commit because they're going to be skeptical. In this case, I said, you know, I, we're, not, we're not matching at all. Why don't, why don't we just call this a day? You go do your thing and I'll do my thing. It's like, all right, well, can I walk you to the tea? Nope, nope, have a great day, thanks.
0: <laughs> Our next storyteller is Josh. Josh, welcome Josh to the stage. Do the mic, do the mic.
8: So I, I, um, I did not plan to tell a story tonight. Um, Jen challenged me to tell a more depressing story than hers, so... <laughs> I turned down that offer but I'm still here anyways. Um, I was gonna tell a story about how I ended up in Boston and I ended up in Boston uh, by means of escaping Washington DC. Um, I grew up in New England on Cape Cod, a birthplace of the, of the mosquito, um, story slam. And um, I really like New England, uh, I think it's right now the micro adventure capital of the world. Um, there's like a lot of really cool stuff here that you can do like a little bit of you can't do you can't do a lot of anything it's not the best anything but you can do a lot of things here the surfing exists it's not good the skiing exists it's not good uh the hiking exists a lot of things are good here but just not not the best um and i, I left here uh, i went to go to washington dc um, and I worked uh, for a, a progressive legislator who not a lot of people knew who he was at the time, and I was really excited about it. It was like the forefront of the, what he's now calling the political revolution and uh, the progressive movement, and we were gonna uh, take back Congress from Wall Street and moneyed interest held in place by corrupt campaign finance uh, laws. You may have heard these words being uttered by somebody on TV all the time these days. Um, and I was really excited about it. But the problem was it was in a place that is completely devoid of any outdoor culture or environment that is conducive to like spending time recreating outdoors. Uh, Washington DC, apologies to anyone who grew up there, lived there, or appreciates that place. It's an an urban center uh, with all of the, the joys that urban centers have and none of the excitement that out side of urban centers have. There's like a few national parks in the vicinity within four hours that are super crowded, um, but it doesn't have the ocean. It's missing one, that key factor. Doesn't have mountains, it's a super flat area. Um, you can walk on pavement. That's a thing you can do there when you're not working. Um, but you know, I, when I moved there, uh, I had to buy a suit. Um, I didn't own a suit, I had to buy one to work there I owned a wetsuit that cost significantly more than my first <laughs> suit, suit that I wore every day. Um, and, and yeah, so I was like trying to figure out like how to live in this world that was like all the things I wanted like politically and professionally, but was missing all the things I wanted to do when I was not at the office you know, however many hours a week. Um, so for, I did this for a while. I did this for a few years, and, and it was you know, fighting the good fight, and it was great. But I decided I needed to, like, feed the other part of my life that was missing. Um, So I decided I wanted to move. And I applied to one job, and it was in Boston. And I, like I said, grew up here, and I was excited about it. Uh, And it was doing similar work I was working on. It was going to be on economic inequality and um, writing about it and researching inequality and this issue, which has since, like, blown up. Um, And it it was interesting because... I was applying to this job, but I wasn't telling the people I was working for at the time that I was applying to this job. And I was like on this career ascendancy that was like by every definition very successful, but like not at all what I wanted to do. And the people that I could see like myself becoming, like if I could just get to that next level, involved like like not a lot of sleep, heavily medicated antidepressants from what I could tell, (laughs) or like self-medicating on more nefarious uh, things. So I just, I really needed to not do that. Um, but I didn't tell anyone that I was applying to this job. So I'm at uh, an event and I would applied to this job that I'm really excited about. And I'm staffing my boss at the time and he's giving a speech and it's it's a raucous speech. And he goes through, climate change is, is the greatest threat facing the country. And he's talking about inequality being this really important thing and I see across the room there's this guy who I had just applied to the job to work for, and I'm in this like dilemma because I have to s- staff the boss, but I also like, really want to go make my case to this guy of why he should hire me so I can escape from this world that I'm like supposed to be in. And um, I'm, I'm kind of stuck, and I'm like mapping it out. He's on the other side of the room, and I'm trying to figure out how I can get over there without, like in this quiet room, Without like making a scene and then making it out the door, so um, the the boss gives his speech and the deal was I was supposed to he was going to give an interview after the speech and then we we're going to get in the car and we we're going to drive. He's going to drop him off the airport and then I'm he's going to go and I'm going to go. Um, so I have this plan in mind. I'm going to go over there right as the speech ends and I'm going to talk to this guy, and make an introduction like Hi, my name's Josh. Like I just applied to this job and I'm not supposed to be talking to you, but like maybe you should hire me and then we could like you know do this kind of thing in Boston. And it worked. The boss gives a speech. I go over there and I I make my pitch. And the guy seemed great. And I come out. And the problem is my boss is not where he's supposed to be with the reporter. The reporter's there, things, But he's not. So I come out. And for the only time in my career working with this guy, I find him and he yells at me. And I don't mean like yells at me like, oh, like. You're bad. He, he's like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you were supposed to be at this thing. I've got this reporter following me that I can't talk to you right now, and it's messy. And I'm like, shit, I'm gonna get fired <laughs> from the job I have, and not get the next job, and like, I'll, you know, I'll be totally out of luck at that point. So, um, the story has a happy ending. Uh, the guy that I talked to emailed me that night. And we started talking, and um, within like a few days, he'd offered me the job, and, and I took it. And the, the boss uh, turned out he was fine without me because now he's like leading the race to be the president of the country, um, which is really exciting. And I get to do all the outdoor exciting things and write of inequality, which is helping his case. So it, it, it's all really good. So, like, I think that's why Jen wanted me to tell the story, because there's, like, excitement at the end of this thing. Like, he's going to be the president, and I'm going to keep surfing and climbing and doing what I do. So, yeah, it works out. Thanks.
0: Okay, so the next person up is, please welcome, JP.
9: All right, good evening, everyone. And I lived a long time in Chicago uh, and had a job there that was great for a while. And then after a while, it wasn't so great. And I realized that uh, I couldn't succeed at what I was doing anymore. And I was just trying to get a job that was going to work out in a different part of the country. And so in 2013, I did get a different job in New Mexico where I have uh, my... I have parents that are living there and I thought this is great I can go to New Mexico I like New Mexico and it's a new start everything's gonna be great except for the fact that after three months on the job and commuting between Albuquerque and Santa Fe and traveling all over the state which is kind of desolate and there's a lot of lonely roads and I'm thinking oh I just moved from one job that was stressing me out to something else that was a different kind of stressing me out, and I wasn't succeeding at it. To the point of going to meeting with uh, a county employee in the northwest corner of the state, who after, after my five minutes of being late to a meeting, publicly, publicly humiliated me by calling me worthless as a castrated bull. Oh. <laughs> yes. So, I realized this job is not going to work after a couple of months. So, I have a new vehicle. I have a job that I know I'm not going to work out at. What do I do? I, had to de- I decided that I was going to resign, and I'm in the West. I have a, I've, I've got a Subaru, and I love national parks, so darn it, I'm going to take a road trip. And I'm going to see some of the greatest scenery in the country and try to love it. So I go to the northwest part of New Mexico and I go into Utah and the lovely national parks of Utah, the southern part of the state. I saw the the wonders of Bryce Canyon and I met a guy that says, oh, you're on this great road trip. You have to go to Zion and hike the Angel's Landing Trail. And I'm thinking, "I'm I'm going on a road trip and I'm doing things I've never done before. Screw it, I'll take this hike. And so I'm afraid of heights, but you know what? This is a hike that goes up like this side. You have like you have basically three feet of clearance on either side of you, and it's a thousand foot drop off. And there's a chain fence that goes along, or a chain link rope that goes along. And I thought, oh, I'll just wear biking gloves. You know, this will be great as the guide, as as a guide told me to do. So. I'm on the Angels Landing Trail. It's October of 2014 and it's it's glorious weather. And I'm going along this trail. It's like, ah, oh, you know, freedom. I don't have a job, and I'm I'm just enjoying these national parks. I'm going along this trail and using my biking gloves and the, the chain rope that pulls me up. It's like this is this is a piece of cake. Well, this is okay, there's a big drop-off right there, but it's not a big deal. And then there was a, a German father who was probably about in his late fifties and his daughter that were, uh, that were crowding, they're kind of crowding behind me. Cause, cause it's only, you have to wait for people to go up the trail and wait for people to come back down the trail to go to this, you know, this precipice of the angel's landing. And so as I ascended up the rope, I'm going along, I'm going along. And then, you know, Grant, I'm not looking at the drop off. And then all of a sudden the rope moved. I grabbed it with one hand. I was, I was an idiot. I didn't grab it with two hands. So I grabbed it with one hand, and then to pull myself up, I, I let go, and then went to grab the other one. But the rope moved, and all of a sudden, no rope. And oh, shit. And so I look back, and I have a half a second to realize I'm on a 1,000-foot drop-off, and I just missed the rope. And I missed the hand with the other rope. And so I quick lunged, lunged to my side into a juniper bush that the other side of the juniper bush, two feet and then the drop off. So I crashed my tailbone, my elbow, whatever, my feet went up in the air and somehow my boot flew off and over my head and didn't go over the cliff. It landed in the juniper bush next to it. And I look back like, oh my God. And then the German tourist who had moved the rope in the first place looks down at me and says, that bush saved your life. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, jerk. My mind wasn't saying jerk. Help me up. And so some, another hiker from just down the path was like, Oh my God! I can't believe that I almost I almost fainted. You almost, yeah, I almost fell off the cliff. So, come and they they come and they help me up and I'm bleeding and I'm bruised and I'm I'm all messed up and I'm like, there's no way in hell that I'm not going to finish hiking up to the top of this trail now. So I continued on my way, just like let the German go off and do his thing. And I hiked to the top of it, looked out over the edge, and how gorgeous it was over the Virgin River there at Zion National Park. And I slowly descended down the trail and, 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 you know, made it back and had like the biggest dinner and drinks, beers, and, and desserts. You know, yes, I'm having the cheesecake with raspberries, damn it. <laughs> and just was very grateful. And then uh, continued on my way to some other national parks through California and then back to New Mexico and such. And now I've ended up here but for that day, very grateful in Zion National Park. Thank you.
0: Our last storyteller tonight is
10: Terrence. You can choose, all right? Because apparently escape is figured massively in my life. So these are the options and you can choose, all right? We've got cab driving in Boston, We've got escaping from prison. We've got escaping from bees. We have escaping from the feds. We have escaping, and this is not personal, but I was just there, escaping from the LRA, Joseph Kony in Uganda. Um, kidnapping in Honduras. And um, something about Jimmy Cliff. Not really sure what that last note meant. So. Anybody bees are, I think bees are pretty pretty bees are pretty good which one we've got cab driving we've got Honduras kidnapping, we've got bees, bees, yeah, they're just bees, but man, it's like it actually it's much like your your story cab driving all right, so. I was in a cab. Joseph Coney was my client, and there were fucking bees everywhere. Um, so wait, which one was it? What am I telling? Cab driving. All right. So um, I was. Um, I'm from Savin Hill, and I was going. I was going to UMass Boston, and I needed a job, and so I was driving a cab, and it was fantastic because. You know, you pretty much got to make your own hours. Um, You know, you had 12 to 16-hour shifts and all that kind of stuff, and I'm I'm working for Checker and whatnot, and it was fantastic. People would pay you in money and Coke and whatever else. And it didn't matter. It was wonderful. And that would keep you up so you could study, and you had a saxophone, and you had a giant Buddha sitting in your front seat, and it was one, just like the best, probably the best job I've ever had in my life. And then there was this terrible night where I got the the the, the, the handicap wheelchair van, um, you know, which has a door and it opens up and then the ramp falls out and it was fantastic. And you do the ride, you know, we're all familiar with the ride. So you, you roll up and you pick up people and, you know, you, you put them in, you strap them in. The, the only problem with the ride van is that after about like 9 o'clock at night for some inexplicable reason, People in wheelchairs don't go clubbing, and but you're still in the wheelchair van, and so you've got this wheelchair van, and there's no partition. So everybody who gets into your van at that point is, you know, they can come up into the front. So I get a call, you know, can you pick this guy up? And I'm like, yeah, fine. So I roll out, and I pick this guy up, and he says, take me to the Four Seasons. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Get to the Four Seasons, the fare was like 15 bucks, he gives me 100. He's like, "Just hang out for a little while." I'm like, "100 bucks. I will hang out as long as you want, man." I mean, like whatever. This is fantastic. And so I'm sitting there. He comes down about 20 minutes later with a buddy of his. And he's a completely different person at this point. Like the guy who I dropped off was was, you know, amiable, kind, gave me a 100 bucks. The guy who showed up back into my handicap van is now super hyper and really aggro. And he gets into the van with this other guy, and they're sitting in the back. And I'm like, where do you guys want to go? And they want to go to a place that I'm not going to say the name of because everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, it's a drug place. So anyway, they want to go there, and I'm like, huh, all right, whatever, you know. So I'm driving, and there they start having an argument. And it's a really bad argument. Like, really bad. It's to the point where the guy's like, I told you I want to see the drugs now! And the other guy pulls out a gun. And he puts it in the other guy's face. And he's, and, and I can see all this in the rearview mirror, and I'm like, Oh shit and um, and then, as Bill Cosby famously said, then I did, and so then they're screaming at each other, and there's the the guy with the gun is gonna shoot this other guy. And then the other guy figures out his best play is, hey, we're in a cab, and there's a guy over there, and he can see all this. Why don't I point the finger at him? So he's like, hey, man, that driver. What about that driver? And so then the guy, you know, who's obviously hopped up on something, he's like, yeah. So he pops up to the front and sticks the gun on my head, and he's like, are you cool? Are you cool? And I'm like, ah. Uh. Uh uh-uh. uh, I drive from point A to point B. Uh, that's all I do. I just I just drive people around, man. I, like I have absolutely uh, uh, ultimate deficit of coolness right now. Like A to B, A to B, A to B. And he's like, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna say anything. You're not gonna say anything." Meanwhile, I have my leg pressed against the, you know, there's like you remember Adam Twelve, you know, like and you call in and you pick that thing up, and so I had had my leg pressed against the receiver that goes to the mouth and so you know my dispatcher can hear everything and this guy screaming at me I'm like and and he's like are you cool are you cool I'm like I'm totally cool to pull over right here at this white hen pantry right next to the mass turnpike right here at the white hen pantry at the red light oh my god And so he's screaming and he's yelling and he's pushing this gun in my face. Meanwhile, the other guy is like making furtive moves, as the police would say, furtive moves to try and get out of the handicap van. But he's not because the other guy quickly turns the gun on him and then he turns the gun back on me. And then I slowly roll up to the red light. And I think we all we all know this. You know, you know, where the you know, you know where the church in the round is. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a white hand pantry right around the corner. There's a, there's, a, there's a light right there, and it goes right over the, the mass turnpike. So I roll up to that, and this guy, he's completely diverted. He's turned the gun on the back guy, and I'm sitting there, and I slowly put the cab into park. And as he's pointing the gun at the guy in the back, I then quickly exit the car, and I jump out, and I run over to the White Hand Pantry, and I run in, and I'm like, ah! and the guy behind the counter's like, Fuck! And he does exactly what I want him to do, which is call the police. So the police are there because there is a police precinct about, I don't know, a block and a half away. And the police roll up about two and a half, three minutes later. And these guys are still in the cab yelling at each other. They're screaming at each other. So the police have the easiest job they've ever had. They just come up, they surround the cab, the guy comes out, he drops the gun. And they take all of his money and... You know this this wonderful young sergeant comes up to me. He's like, "Hey man, you know, here you go. Here's the money." And I'm like, "No, this this dude like gave me 100 bucks. <laughs> like,
5: like I'm
10: I'm all good. Like I uh, I don't need any more money." He's like, "No, seriously, you should take the money." I'm like, "No, no, I'm never driving a cab again. Like, I'm I'm done with this. I'm 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 done with this." And so, you know, I take the money. And then I I get back in the cab and I'm driving I'm driving back and I'm like I'm never I, I called the dispatcher, I'm like, I am never, ever, 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 ever driving a cab again. And I'm driving, and it's late, and the sun kind of starts to come up, and I'm driving behind Fenway Park, and the sun is breaking. And as I'm pulling in, you know, I'm just, like, looking, and the city is just this, like, resplendent tableau. And I just think, you know, yeah, I might almost gotten killed. God damn it, that was a fucking great night. (laughs) Like, I'm on that shit every night.
1: Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Title Theater Company, Vanessa Vardabedian, and Caitlin Langstaff. You can find us on Facebook at Mosquito Story Slam or Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all the Mosquito
0: podcasts on soundcloud.com mosquitostoryslam Mosquito Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.